for those of you that haven't been here for the past couple weeks or ever, we've been focusing on the gospel. That's a good thing to focus on. We started in Genesis, uh, the beginning, before man was created. We saw that God was sovereign, God was holy, God was righteous, God was just, God was true, God knew everything, God had a plan for everything, and then, boom, he created man. He created man, Isaiah says, to glorify him so that man may enjoy God, glory in God, and magnify God. We saw that uh, God created man in his image, and then, oops, Eve and Adam are idiots, just like you and I are idiots and they chose um, to make themselves like God. They chose to be independent from God's will. They chose to be independent from God's word, and they tried to do life on their own, and it didn't work very well for them. In fact, you and I are recipients of the consequences of that. Romans 5 says that because of their sin, death reigned, death spread not only to them, but through them, through their seed, to all men, And because of death, because of sin, death came, and it's been bad news ever since. The cancer of sin has infected all of us. It's inside us. We don't even realize how destructive it is. We're deceived at how much sin rules and reigns in our lives. We walk through all the Old Testament and how basically the Old Testament was one screaming cry after another of, we need a Savior. We need rescue. And God painted these pictures of grace and redemption throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15, this whole deal with the seed and the serpent and crushing the serpent's head. We jump to Abraham and how we saw that Abraham believed and it was credited to his account righteousness. He didn't do anything except for belief. He knew what God said, he believed it, and God credited it as righteousness to him. He looked forward to the gospel, saw the gospel, Galatians 3 says, and then boom, he had righteousness. We continue going through the story. We saw how up and down and up and down, it just got worse and worse and worse and worse until God judged his chosen people. Um, He called them some really nasty names. He gave them all of these prophets to say, repent, return, repent, return, repent, return. And they didn't. And so at the end of that, after three captivities, three exiles, God brings his chosen people back and he's silent for 400 years. And then in a manger, he speaks through his son, Hebrew says, he speaks who he is, who his character is. He doesn't just say, hey, this is the way he puts on flesh, comes and dwells among us, is what John 1.14 says. Last week, the, if you watch Lost, uh, the music got a little more intense the, um, it got a little more climactic. It got a little more like, oh, this is horrible. We looked at Judas. We looked at the betrayal of Jesus. We looked at all of the things that surrounded the betrayal of Jesus and how it was foreknown. We looked at the chief scribes and Pharisees, how they plotted against him. And that brings us to Mark chapter 14. What we're going to do this week, uh, we're going to focus on some aspects of the cross. Uh, If you didn't know this or not, but Jesus, from the time that he went to the garden where Judas came and just a jerk betrayed him with a term of affection, giving him a kiss, his followers were asleep, 
He's having this intense moment with God. Father, take this cup from me. If it's your will, take this cup from me. If not, your will be done, not mine. And he has this like three-time intense prayer, sweating drops of blood. His followers are asleep. Then in the middle of the night, which was illegal, by the way, they come and arrest him. And from that point forward in the Garden of Gethsemane to the next morning, Jesus undergoes six trials back and forth, okay? First one, he appears before Annas. Then he goes before Pilate. They don't know what to do with him, so they send him over here. Then they send him back, and then they send him back, and then they send him back. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to focus on those last two. The trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish trial, and then the, trial, the last trial before Pilate. You all know some of this story. You've probably seen the Passion. Uh, you've probably seen how all this unfolds, the big drama, but we're going to focus on these two things. Then we're going to focus on the death of Christ briefly, and then the last 10, 15 minutes we're going to focus, okay, so what? What's the deal? How can we get past this? Uh, What's the cross mean? I I heard somebody recently through the grapevine, nobody comes to tell me, I just hear about it from other people, you know, this is kind of depressing. I wish we would have some encouragement. Well, oh, stop, filter. This is what it's all about. What we are looking at in the gospel changes everything, changes history. And if we had this like feel-good message of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, that wouldn't make sense unless you had the gospel, unless you had the full picture of who God is, holy, just, who you are, crappy in sin, and what God has done in order to restore and bring you out of that. Okay? So, encouragement. Yes, if you're a believer, you should be very encouraged. Wow, you should be floored. If you're not a believer, you should realize, man, sin's, sin's pretty a big deal. So let's go. I'm done. Mark chapter 14. Let's look at a few scriptures from the trials of Jesus. This first passage is from the last Jewish trial in front of the Sanhedrin. Jump to verse 55, if you would. Now, you know the deal. I read it all the way through. Then we unpack it a little bit. I ask you some questions, and then we talk about, okay, what's the deal? How does this affect us? Verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council, the Sanhedrin, kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus. If we were marking this, I would say, pay attention to Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. Wow. For many... We're giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest, Caiaphas, stood up, came forward, and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he, Jesus, kept silent and didn't answer. Again, the high priest, Caiaphas, was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, what did he say? Wow. Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man, he quotes some scripture to him, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. 
How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Read verse 65 too. Somebody read that out loud. And remember, this is in front of the Sanhedrin. This is Jewish, okay? He says this, and then they spit at him, they beat him, they blindfold him. Gross. This is trial number three of the Jewish trials. It's what we call the priestly trial, okay? What do we see about Jesus right here? What's going on in this text? Go back to verse 55. They couldn't find anything wrong with him. And since they couldn't find anything wrong with him, what were they trying to do? Make up stuff. But what was the problem with the stuff that they were making up against Jesus? Nobody agreed. And in Jewish law, you had to have the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they weren't consistent, you threw it out. So they're having a hard time. So you got this guy, Caiaphas, who's having a problem with all of this. And uh, what, what's some of the things that the people are saying against Jesus? What's the charge? What do they say he said? Yeah, that whole deal about the temple. Verse 58, go back there if you would. <clears throat> Verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple. Now, where are they? Okay, they're in Jerusalem. This is the Sanhedrin, Jewish ruler. So they're probably meeting somewhere around the temple. Okay, and he said he will destroy this temple. What were they thinking about? Physical temple, right? They're thinking of Herod's temple that was built where they worshiped and sacrificed and all that kind of stuff. With hands, and in three days, he, Jesus, they're quoting him, will rebuild or build another made without hands. Now, you see, is what they're saying correct? Did Jesus say this? He did. So they're bringing against him something that he said. This testimony against Jesus regarding the temple in verse 58 was a misunderstanding. They were taking Jesus out of context. They were taking him at what they wanted to prove that he was doing something wrong. Remember back in the day when he cleansed the temple? He tore out the money changers and they asked him, by what authority do you do this? And he said to him, uh, this is John chapter two at the beginning of his ministry, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. They're thinking physical. And you will raise it up in how many days? Three but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So way back in John chapter two, at the beginning of his public ministry, he goes into Jerusalem in a rage, holy rage, tears up the temple, casts out the money changers because of what they're making, all the craziness that they're doing in there. And he's already telling them about his resurrection. Okay, so then go to verse 60. Caiaphas comes along and what's he say to him? What do you, okay, are you not going to defend yourself? Are you not going to do anything about this? Now, Caiaphas probably didn't have the best intentions. He wanted to get rid of Jesus, okay? Remember all the stuff that Jesus had done a couple of days ago? He's healed somebody from the dead. They've come up. 
All this news is spreading. Hey, he's the son of God. What's going on? They don't want him to be the son of God. Are you? Do you not answer what these men are saying against you? Are you not going to defend yourself? What do we usually do when something says, somebody says something wrong about us? Yeah, we're pretty adamant. We're pretty emphatic about the way that we defend ourselves. Even if we were wrong a little bit, we try to defend ourselves, right? Jesus just sits there, stands there, silent. That awkward silence where it's like, are you going to say anything? But he kept silent, verse 61. He didn't answer Again, Caiaphas was questioning him. What's his question this time? He points it a little bit more, a little bit more specific. Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one? Remember, who's he talking to here? Jesus. Where are they? Somewhere around the temple. Who's the audience around them? Jews who know the Old Testament. They know all the stuff that we've been talking about. Are you the Christ? Remember the testimony of um, Peter? Several weeks ago, we looked at it. Okay, you, people say that you're Elijah. People say you're John the Baptist. People say you're this and that. And then Jesus says to him, who do you say that I am? And what was Peter's response? I believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so they know that he said it before. Jesus said what? He speaks, verse 62, I am. We don't have time to go into the significance of that, but it's pretty huge. He's basically making himself out to be God there. And then he says, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. (laughs) How did the high priest respond, verse 63 and 64? What does he do? Huh? Huh? We don't, he just, out of his mouth, he just said, he's God. He accuses him of blasphemy, and what's he do? Tears his clothes. An outward sign of emotion. What he's saying is crazy. Tear the clothes. Blasphemy. Remember what blasphemy, what that means? Stupid talk. And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. You see, the problem here is the Jewish people had no power. If they were going to kill somebody, who they had to go to? The Romans. So they have their, okay, he's guilty of this, but now they've got to do this political conniving and manipulation, and they've got to do all this crazy uh, manipulation. They've got to set the stage and move it to the Roman court. That's why it was back and forth. So let's go then to another one. Let's go to the third Roman trial. Take your Bibles and turn to John. We like the book of John. That's where we've been for the past past couple of weeks. They take Jesus, John chapter 19. They take him from the Sanhedrin back to Pilate. Um, In chapter 18, he's been before Pilate. We pick it up, the story in verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Now, what you don't see here because of where we picked it up, this is illegal. 
Because in John chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate has already said that Jesus is innocent. There's all these illegal things that are going on with this story, okay? Pilate's already said he's innocent. Do you whip and beat and humiliate an innocent man? Usually what do you do if somebody's innocent? Hey, you're innocent, but we're going to punish you anyway and then let you go. Is that how it usually goes? No. Okay. Verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is the second time he said that. Verse 5, Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns, a purple robe. And we're so numb to this, but this is just horrific. Pilate said to them, behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves, crucify him for what? I find no guilt in him. Three times. Take him yourselves. I find no guilt in him. Okay, let's unpack this for a second. Anybody know anything about scourging? Usually what they would do, Pilate, the the construct here, Pilate wasn't himself scourging him, if you didn't realize this. His people were scourging him. And basically what they would do is they would have a pole that was about this high. Jesus would have been bound and probably either wearing just a loincloth or almost completely naked. And what they would do is they would have this pole, and this is according to Josephus, a Roman historian, and they would put, put his arms like this, much like that, up on this pole, exposing the back, exposing the muscles uh, even more. And what they would do in this scourging, uh, they would use this short whip, not a, a big long whip like you know Indiana Jones style, but a short whip. And on this whip, it would have a number of braided leather bands. Not just like my belt, where I would take my belt off. My dad used to beat me with a belt. Um, Not beat me, that's the wrong word. Discipline me with a belt. And there's a difference between smooth leather and braided leather. Braided leather, all those little curves and stuff, that irritates a whole lot more than just smooth leather. If that wasn't bad enough, what they would do is on the end of these these pieces that would come out, they were all different lengths. On the ends of these pieces, there would be iron, uh, lead balls, uh, probably about the size of marbles. There would be jagged rocks. There would be jaw bones, pieces of bone, pieces of teeth of animals. Uh, And they would they would take Jesus exposed and, and take this small thing and thrash. It wasn't just like a whip, like ouch, but they would take it. All of those fragments would enter the back, enter the muscles, and then they would rip it. I mean, rip. Exposing uh, muscle, tearing muscles, exposing all of the, the blood veins in the back. Then they would take it, and they would do it again. There was a limit to how long they were allowed to do this, how many many whips, how many thrashes they were allowed to do. 
They did it again. They did it again. They did it again. Now remember what's Pilate said about him three times. He's innocent. And yet they do this, okay? So they do this to Jesus. And what else do they do? Verse 2. Yeah. Now, you know, those of us that have grown up in the church, we've seen these cheesy dramas, and we've seen this cheesy stuff about, about this event. This was not like a even rated R event here, okay? This was like a NC-17 type atmosphere where the loss of blood, uh, Jesus probably fainted several times, Jesus probably blacked out several times, doesn't mention that he said anything. And they put this crown on his head. And anybody know anything about your head? Anybody have a head injury in here? Head injuries are the worst. Why are they the worst? You bleed the most. So they take this and they embed it on Jesus' head, piercing his head. So, I mean, he's got ripped open back. And probably, like my mom, when my mom would whip us, she never hit where she was supposed to hit. So usually, according to Josephus and others, what they would do is they would whip, and the, the whip, the braids of the whip would wrap around the chest and the stomach and rip open the stomach. So his entrails, his stomach, not just his back, but all over his body is just thrashed. This isn't like, if you've seen the Passion, they were like rated G on what this looked like. It was a lot more intense probably. Most people agree to that. Then they put this, this crown of thorns on his head, and then what else do they do? Verse 3, or I'm sorry, verse 2, they put this purple robe on him. Purple, royalty, hey, he's the king. Okay, this is the kingly trial. So they put this robe on him, and what happens? He's, he's blood all over the place, blood dripping down. They put this robe. Anybody have like a big wound where they wrap cloth around you? Not a Band-Aid, but cloth. Yeah, may have stopped the bleeding for a little bit. May have kept it from clotting. Still bleeding, 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 bleeding. Another scripture says after this point, when they took him out to crucify him, that they ripped that part off and put a red robe on him. So can you imagine like your little Band-Aid when you've been breathing and you rip it off and it hurts like a mug? Can you imagine? You can't imagine what this was like. And what they do in verse 3. They mocked him. They began to come to him. The the verb right there, it's an imperfect middle. They kept coming. They kept coming and kept coming, mocking, provoking, hail, king of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews. What else would they do? Slap him. Now, I know some of you have been in fights before, but if you're in a fight, you don't, You don't slap somebody. An open hand slap, unless you're a girl, an open hand slap is the most, it's just humiliating. 
Everything about this is just humiliating. They're slapping him. He can't do anything about it. And it's even debatable of whether or not he feels it because he's been through so much. He's lost so much blood. So Pilate, verse 4, comes out again and says to him, to show just how ridiculous this is. You want to kill this man? Look at what I've done to him. Brings him out, just so you know that I find no guilt in him. Okay, so there's this horror that comes out that is Jesus. He's got the blood all over him. He's got the purple. He's got the crown. They're probably having to prop him up because he's just lost so much blood. And they bring him out, probably on a platform, overlooking the crowd. And typically, if you see, you know, our society is so entrenched with like CSI and Discovery Channel where we see all these bloody things. They've never seen this kind of thing before, most likely. They bring him out and you would expect the response to just be this gasp of horror, this gasp of what are we doing? Look at what's happening. But instead, what do they do? Crucify. Crucify. This, not that you really care, but it's an aorist imperative in the Greek. It's immediate urgency. They see him and their immediate response is crucify. They don't even use the him, the pronoun. Just crucify, crucify. And they keep yelling and yelling as Jesus is standing there losing blood. And Pilate doesn't know what to do. His wife has warned them about the situation. In Matthew, it talks about she has this dream the night before. Romans are very superstitious. The sun sets a different way and it means something. The rain comes down and it means something. Read Julius Caesar. Shakespeare got it perfectly. She's there. She has this dream. She wakes up and says, this is a righteous man. Don't do anything with this, guy, with this guy. So Pilate, verse 5, Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns. Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers, they crucify, Pilate said to them, okay, you do it yourselves. I'm done. You know other scriptures, what's it say he did? He washes his hands. It says, it's your deal. The blood, his blood's on your hands. Now, that's really interesting. Strange justice here. He's innocent, but go ahead and crucify him. What's what's governing Pilate here from what we've seen so far? Fear of what? The people, the mob. This is during the Passover. This is when all of the people of Israel are in Jerusalem. There's tons of people there. And his biggest fear probably, is a mob. Let's keep going. Verse 7. The Jews answered him, Pilate. I mean, he's just shown them this is really ridiculous. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die. Why should he die? Because he has made himself to be the son of God. There's no question. This, this crap of, oh, Jesus was a good teacher. No. He was a good teacher, but not the son of God. 
You, you can't buy into that. Okay? He said he was the Son of God, and even his enemies know what he's saying. Well, Jesus didn't really say that. Yes, he did. Verse 8, therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, what was the statement again? Delete my soapbox. What did he say? What did they say? He's got to die. Why? He's the Son of God. So because of this statement, what happened with Pilate? He was even more afraid. More afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You don't speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority or the power to release you? And I have the authority or power to crucify you. And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, go back to verse 7. The the chief scribes and Pharisees, they've been on Jesus' trail conspiring to get him for three years. John 5, 18, they had this like little conspiracy amongst themselves saying he's making himself out to be God. This wasn't a new thing. They just had to find a way to catch him. The Sanhedrin, as we saw in Mark, had already rendered their decision, but they had to manipulate. Go to verse 9. And he entered the praetorium. That's the Roman military headquarters. Again, it was during Passover. They were afraid of riots. But the real point here is verse 10 and 11. You don't speak to me? Don't you realize I could set you free? Is that what Jesus was worried about here? No. Remember the garden. If it's your will, take this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Verse 11, what's he say to Pilate? (laughs) You have no authority over me unless it be given to you from above. For this reason. Okay, so what's Jesus say? To the guy who is in charge of this province, you have no authority. Well, not really no authority. Where does his authority come from? Yeah, if you have a problem with this, I would encourage you to read Romans 13. Romans 13, 1, all authority that is over us has been put there by God, including your boss, including the president, including all of those things. Submit to God, submit to their authority. <laughs> Not what you really would typically say in this situation. The question is, though, why were the Jews who had been looking for their promised Messiah for 4,000 years? Why, when they had been looking for him, I mean, they were searching for him. Why would they be so adamant to kill their Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God? I mean, these people wanted the Messiah to come, supposedly. To understand the answer to this question, you need to think back over all of the Messianic prophecies that we've talked about. There were two categories of these prophecies, okay? Number one, Jesus is coming as suffering servant lamb. Isaiah 53 hits this big time. And the other ones were, he's coming as reigning king. What were they looking for? They were looking for the king. 
They were looking for the temporary release from their captivity. They were looking for the release from the situation that they found themselves where the Romans lorded over them and they worshipped a little bit, but they weren't truly free. So they wanted release from that situation. They wanted this king to come in. They wanted a rebellion to take place. One had taken place several years ago. It didn't go very well. They wanted a rebellion to take place where they, you know, stick it to the man, uprising and took care of business, took out the Romans. So they missed it. They were looking for what they wanted, and they missed the greater need. They thought that their need right then was temporary release from this situation, when in reality, what did they need? What was the deeper issue? The forgiveness of sin, a spiritual need. And you know, we won't belabor this point too much, much, but some of you have come to Jesus as temporary release from this situation negating the greater need of forgiveness of sins and that Jesus pulls you out and changes you. You just want him to deal with the temporary situation. That's not who Jesus paints himself to be. The Jews, under heavy Roman domination, were looking for Messiah, their king, and they'd be promised to him. It had been promised to him. Uh, Zechariah 12.10, it said, (sighs) one day... Zechariah is in the Old Testament, said that one day the Jews will look upon him whom they've pierced and be gloriously saved. That's why so many people care so much about Israel and what's happening over there because Scripture says that one day these people will look when Jesus returns and they will see the one whom they've pierced and they'll be saved. That's awesome. It's so cool. Verse 12 As a result of this, what Jesus had just said about authority, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you're no friend to Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment or the bema seat at the place called pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabatha or Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, Roman time, 6 a.m. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. Verse 12, go back to it. As a result of this, Pilate kept on seeking. The verb construction here, he was looking for more and more ways to release Jesus. But finally, they appeal to the higher power, not God, but the Caesar power over him. If you let this guy go, Caesar's going to find out and you're going to die. Verse 14, it was on the day of the preparation. It was on Friday. They were preparing for the Sabbath. Note the sarcasm of Pilate at the end. Behold, your king. Jump down to verse 17. Despite the objections of the chief priests of the Jews, the title, the king of the Jews, was placed was the inscription Pilate placed on the cross. It was in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, so that many could read it. Verse 17 of John 19, I'll try to go through this quickly. They took Jesus, therefore, he went out bearing his own cross. That was customary for a Roman criminal convicted to carry his own instrument of torture to the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him. 
This, according to Mark 15, was around 9 a.m., three hours, in between two other men, one on one side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Usually they put what they were being crucified for on top of the cross. Verse 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments, made four parts, a part for every soldier and also a tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, decides whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We don't have time to go into it right now, but man, if you want to see how this picture is weaved so clearly through Scripture, you need to go to Psalm 22 later tonight. Over a dozen prophecies, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Reproach of men, despised among the people, being laughed at, scorned, saying, trust in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. Why won't the Lord save him? That's all of that is in Psalm 22. In crucifixion, before being lifted up, you know what happens. The criminal would be taken in the wrist. You know, usually we think of it being right here, but it's more like right here, right in that smack dab vein right there. Huge pierce put on the crossbar here, here, and then also the legs would be bent. I'll get up here so you can see me. The legs would be bent and they would be crossed like this, and one would go right through there. And so what would happen was, you'd be sitting like this, and you would have to breathe. You would start to sink, and start to sink, and start to sink. And in order to breathe, you could breathe in, but you couldn't exhale. And so what you would have to do, is in order to exhale, you would have to push up. Meanwhile, The flesh is ripping here, the flesh is ripping here because you're using your upper body, you're using every ounce of energy, which Jesus had none, to push up. And as this happens, it's also tearing the flesh in your heel. You had to do that in order to exhale the carbon dioxide. If you didn't do that, you would sit here and you would suffocate. So Jesus is pushing up. Every word that Jesus says on the cross, which is a great study for you to do in preparation for Easter of what he said, every word Jesus would have to excruciating pain, endure it, push up and speak the words and then slouch back down. On and on and on. This, of course, was a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He was bruised on the heel, but he took out the enemy. Remember what had happened to his back. His back is on the cross. Every time he would push up, he would use every ounce. He would use his muscles, and it would, his exposed skin would scratch again, opening those wounds fresh again. If the Romans wanted to speed things up, they would break the criminal's legs so that they wouldn't be able to push up, and they would suffocate. Carbon dioxide. However... Jesus' bones weren't broken, according to Exodus 12, 46. Jesus, the Lamb of God, died approximately the same time that all of the religious Jews throughout the nation of Israel were slaughtering their Passover lamb. Some very crazy things happened, earthquakes, the great thing happened in the temple. All of this, the fulfillment of the prophecy. Let's keep going, one more. I won't get into everything we have for tonight. 
Verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, they had to get everything ready before the Sabbath because they weren't allowed to do anything on the Sabbath. So that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. Speed it up, get it done with, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first man, man, and the other that was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, he'd already cried out, into your hands, I commit my spirit, it's finished. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. It's believed that it was his left side because of what happens next. Telling the truth, or I'm sorry, because immediately what happened? Blood and water came out. So they believe it was left side because the spear goes up and punctures the heart, which is where the water comes from. Verse 35, and he who has seen, talking about John, he who has seen has testified. And his testimony, John's testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth. Why is he telling all this? According to this text. So that you might what? Believe. And you all know, I've said it a million times, the whole point of the book of John is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and in believing that you might have life. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him is to be broken, Exodus 12. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. When Jesus was crucified, he shed his blood. This is very significant because Leviticus 17.11, you can write these two down, look at them later. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for atonement or covering for your souls. Hebrews 9.22 adds, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. This wasn't just a spot of blood, this was gruesome, it was sick. I want you to write these two references down. If you have, if you're keeping notes, if not, get them from somebody later because we don't have time to go into them tonight. But I want you to write these two down. I want you to look at these, and this is the so what. This is why we're focusing on this, okay? This is the so what, and this is where we'll start with next week. We've already said this one, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Write that one down. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And then Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, 9, start in verse 9, and go all the way through. I don't know why I have 9.22. Hebrews 2, chapter 2, verse 9 through 18. Hebrews 2, 9 through 18. And the reality is, all of these things had to happen in order for what you're going to look at in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And Hebrews, it's some pretty awesome stuff that we'll talk about next week. I just want to read these to you, and then we're going to watch a short, very short video. If you would, just let me pray these over you real quickly. Is that, is that okay? Is that weird for you? Let me pray these over for you. Over you. This week we looked at Three trials, or two of the trials, two of the six. We saw that Pontius Pilate sentenced Jesus to scourging. 
We talked a little bit, kind of gruesome of what that looked like. I didn't want to just numb you by showing you some pictures or anything. Every detail of the crucifixion of Jesus was a fulfillment of prophecy. God, the Father, was the one that killed Jesus. Jesus died as the Lamb of God at the same time the Passover lands were being sacrificed. Through Jesus' death, he made a substitute for the sins of the people. And this is what it says about this instance. Greater love has no one than this, that one day lay down his life for his friends. John chapter 15. John 10 says, I, Jesus, am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that, it may, that I may take it up again. No one's taking it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. 1 John 3, 16. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. The God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might have life and live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the covering, the propitiation, the substitute for our sins. God, we thank you for this graphic and vivid depiction of love. Not the flowery, emotional love, but the hard-as-nails, excruciating sacrifice of love. Father, we ask that you would allow us to, again, have that sense of, of gravity and weightiness of the gospel. That without the cross, there is no life. Without the shedding of blood, there is no eternal life. Father, allow us to look at it from the other perspective of this is what it cost in order to set me free from sin. This is what it took in order to deal with the cancer of sin. Why? In Jesus' name, would I go back to sin? So, Father, I ask that you would continue to work on hearts, continue to shatter misconceptions about the gospel, continue to speak truth, continue to wreck lives with the grace of God. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.